Well, how are we doing today? You guys doing well? Uh, I'm going to ask you again, I gave you a shot last week, how many of you have now finished your Christmas shopping? Let me see a few more hands. Yeah, not really. Not so much. Uh, okay, we still got plenty of time. I, I, gotta mention, I didn't mention the other two services, but it was a great week for us at uh, our, our household. Uh, my daughter did deliver this week, and we've got another grandchild. Uh, and the good thing is she was in church last week, heard the message. The minute she walked in the door, asked for the epidural. So it was awesome. And uh, so we have uh, a little granddaughter, Dasha Marie, and she looks great. And so I've got about, uh, 15 pictures here. I like this kid. But I didn't even mention the other two services, but hey, you're 11 o'clock. We can go till noon. We can go till three. We can go to four. No need to rush, right? So uh, anyway, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors. And if it's your very first time again, welcome. We're going to go into time of teaching. Inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. So you definitely want to take that out. That'll help you follow along. And then if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're excited to be here at this Christmas season and really studying the, the backstory to Christmas, uh, this great rebellion that happened at the beginning of the time, the set in motion, this death at so many levels that you came to restore a life. And so we pray today as we kind of delve into more of this, this death that's impacted our race at so many levels, that you'd help us to see um, the source of that death, but also uh, the, the path to life and the path to, to uh, getting better and becoming the people we're created to be. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now all fall. We're actually coming towards the end of it pretty soon. It's called the Genesis Chronicles. And for those of you who are brand new, this is actually today, this is actually the third in a trilogy of series. This, this last section is called uh, The Rebellion and Redemption. And uh, this, this whole series has been the first three chapters of Genesis are three of the most important chapters in all the Bible because they, they set the foundation and stage this epic tale that God is going to tell throughout the Bible. It's like it's going to start in Genesis and not be done until Revelation. So if you've been here the last two weeks, we've watched as this incredible God who's created uh, all things for us, this first couple rebels and uh, uh, kind of violates his command, which he's warned them, if you do this, you will die. And we've watched this death begin to take hold at every level of, of their, their lives. And uh, if you were here last week, we, watched, we walked through the final uh, section of chapter 3, where God comes, a creator comes, and he begins to lay out the sentences for, for them, this, this death that's going to come. And what we saw last week is this, this story, this account in Genesis 3, is really the backdrop of Christmas. We often don't think of it that way, but we often think of Christmas starting with Jesus, but really the Christmas story starts with the creation story and this rebellion and this curse that's released over all of creation. And you see this so many times in, in the Christmas carols. We sang one today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I don't know if you caught the second, the second verse that we sang, but it's there in your note sheet where it says, O Come, Thou Rod of Jesse, Free. And uh, Rod of Jesse, referring to King David, the, 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 the line of David through which the Messiah would come. And so Jesse was the father of David. So he says, O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, from this, this rebellion that happened in the garden. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave, this death that came to our race. And so what we want to do today is we want to take some time to explore and unpack this death. And so many times throughout this series, I've talked about this, that when we rebel against the source of all life, that the end result is going to be death. And we've said that it's not, it's not just physical death, it's death at every level of, of human culture. It's, 
It's emotional death. It's intellectual death. It's psychological death. It's relational death. It's cosmic death. We'll talk about the last week of this series. And so today, before we go on and get, we kind of prepare for the coming of the great Redeemer next week of Christmas that was promised, uh, that we saw last week in the great promise that one would come from the line of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. Before we jump on to that part of the story, I want to take some time today and really unpack this concept of death. Because many times we'll read this passage and our mind goes to physical death. And of course, that's a big part of it, but it's so much more. And what I want to do today to get at this is I want to go to a passage in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul writes a commentary, at least many scholars see it that way, a commentary on Genesis 3 and and, and what this death looks like in human culture in history. And so if you have your Bibles, there's a section there. Um, on, your, on your note sheet that says the rebellion, the sentence of death. And we want to go to this New Testament passage that's a commentary on Genesis 3 and see what Paul says about the history of our race. And so if you have your Bibles, your apps, let's go ahead and open them up, turn them on, and go to Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Now, as you're turning there, our approach today is going to be very different than normal. Uh, typically, what we do, if you're a regular here, is we open our Bibles, we walk through a passage of Scripture, we go through the whole thing, unpack it carefully, and then come back and say, here are three principles or two principles or four questions to kind of apply that. And so we're going to be doing something similar today, but instead of going through the whole passage in Romans 1 and then coming back with the principles, we're just going to break it into three sections because it's fairly long. And what I'm going to do for each section, I'm going to identify the type of death that Paul wants to talk about in that section, all right? So there in your, your note sheet, the very first, the first kind of death, the first fill in the blank is spiritual death. And what Paul is going to say is when we rebelled against God as a race, there came a break in our relationship with our creator. Now, of course, we saw this last week, that the moment that the man and the woman rebel, they realize something's deeply wrong. And they go to hide. And they, they run the forest. They, they hide behind trees. They're afraid of God. Up to that point, when God would come, I, I kind of picture them as running to God. Like I said, like young kids running to their father, coming home at the end of the day, happy to see him, can't wait, favorite person in their life, that sort of thing. Uh, but now they're going to run from him. There's definitely a break. And what, what Paul is going to say is that when we rebelled against our creator, something broke in that relationship. And so the reality is we don't want relationship. The reality is that we don't want to know the true God because he's going to hold us accountable for our actions. And so what's going to happen is we're going to reject the truth about God as a race. We're going to create gods in our own image, which is what idolatry is all about, that'll let us do whatever we want. So that's going to happen. So here's what he's going to say in Romans chapter 1. He's going to say that God has revealed himself to every human alive, whether it's kind of a a bush person in in kind of the outback of Australia uh, who's never seen civilization, or whether it's the the banker in New York City that has high corporate, that God has spoken to the human race, whether you've ever read the Bible or not, right? Because uh, uh, in in Romans chapter 1, he's really talking about how God has revealed himself, not to the Jews, that'll come later in Romans, how he's revealed himself to Gentiles, And what he's going to say is that regardless of who you are, that God has revealed himself to you in two primary ways. The first way is in creation. He says, as you look at the world around you, it's obvious that someone made this thing. This place is amazing. It's beautiful. It's huge. It's complex. It's powerful. 
You know, and when you look at a painting, you can kind of see, obviously, it didn't just happen. Someone painted that. And by looking at the painting, you can learn some things about the painter, about the artist. He said the same way, God has revealed himself in creation. When you go out and you see a starry, starry night in the desert, when you go out at sunset and look at the, the sun setting over the ocean in Malibu, when you, when you go up to Yosemite and you look at the, the gorgeous beauty there, when you take a biology class and you study the complexity of, 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 of life, he says that, that God's thumbprint is on everything. And uh, you can pretend it's not. You can pretend there's not a God. You can come up with an alternate theory, but God has clearly revealed himself in creation. The second thing he's going to say is that God has clearly revealed himself in the human conscience. I don't care who you are, but we are all born with a sense of right and wrong. This is why we get so upset at injustice. There's a deep sense that there's a certain way life should work, and when that's violated, we get upset about it, right? You think of all, all the things that, that happened in Ferguson or in uh, New York City, regardless of how you look at those events, there's a sense of justice and injustice at the, at the root of that, right? That is, is this just or is it unjust? And we all have that. And it's interesting because if you, were, if you study the religions of the world, you will find that in every culture, there is a strong sense of right and wrong. And in the greatest religions of the world, the, the most popular religions, what you'll find if you'll study is their core moral code is all basically the same. And uh, many people will say, well, that, that's why, you know, all paths lead to God. Because look, they're all teaching the same thing. The reality is they're not teaching anything the same in terms of who God is, who we are, and the path to salvation. They're teaching opposite things. But in terms of the core moral code, they're teaching the same thing. Why? Paul says, because God's written that on our hearts. And so he says, what happened is, is that the human race, God has revealed himself in creation, and God has revealed himself in conscience, and yet as a, as a human race, we have rejected the truth about God. Why? Because we don't want to come under his leadership, and we don't want to follow this moral north star that he's placed in our heart. We want to do our own thing. And so there's a spiritual death, and what happens is that we create alternate spiritual systems that we worship, idols or whatever the spiritual system that really don't take us closer to God, they take us further away from God. And so there's a real God, and yet we're living as a, as a race as if he doesn't exist, all right? So that's his argument. So here we go. So in chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, the wrath of God, which means, you know, the anger of God, but it's not like human anger that's capricious or unpredictable. It's just God's hatred towards everything that's evil or destructive or, or wrong or bent or polluted uh, self-centered, whatever, the, the dark side. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So they, know, they know the truth, but they're going to suppress it, say that's not really the truth, this is the truth, because they want to do the wrong thing. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. So you say, well, how? How does God make it plain? Well, for since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, you know, what he's like, his eternal power, divine nature, his characteristics have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. You look at the creation, you learn a lot about the creator, so that men are without excuse. He says that there's no one anywhere that's ever going to stand before God and say, I just didn't know. I didn't know there was a God, and I didn't know what was right and wrong, and so you can't hold me accountable. He says, that's not, that's not the way it works. You do know, and you have a moral compass inside of you, 
And the, and the reality is, is we've all known it. We've all rejected it. We've all gone our way. You know, regardless if you've ever heard of the Bible or not. He says, this is the story of our race. It's a race that's rebelled against the creator. Is it kind of a, a dead to God? And so he says, what we do then is we create our own gods that are projections of ourselves. So he says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, didn't acknowledge him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were, next word's really important. Next words were what? Darkened. Okay? So their hearts were dark. Their minds were darkened. Now, Paul is going to say this three times in this passage today. He's going to say that the core sin of the human race is to reject the truth because we'd rather believe a lie. Three times he's going to say it. He's going to, three, three times he's going to say God has revealed himself. He's given us light. He's given us revelation. And we don't like the light because it exposes us. And so three times he says, so what we do as a race, we turn away from the light and we embrace darkness. Now, for those of you who have been at Rocky Peak for any length of time, you know something you often talk about here. I have a name for this. What is it? The dimmer switch principle, right? The dimmer switch that, that there's this principle in scripture that, that when God reveals himself and turns on the light, we have a choice. We can either move towards the light, and if you move towards the light, what happens? You get more light. It gets brighter. Or you can reject the light, say, I don't like that. It's exposing me. And you can turn away from the light and move away towards the darkness. And as you move away from the light, you lose the light you have. Things get more dark. So I call the dimmer switch. Like you, you respond to what God shows you. It's like a dimmer switch gets turned up. You reject what God's showing you, the truth. It gets turned down, like just like a dimmer switch, right? So three times in this short passage, he's going to talk about this, how we knew the truth, we reject the truth, we choose to believe a lie. But here's what he says. When you choose to believe a lie, when you choose to reject the truth, when you choose to reject the light, you get stupid, right? Uh, he's going to use the word moron, right? It's, it's actually the word in the Greek. It's where we get our word moron from. No, seriously. You think I'm joking. It really is. Yeah, moronos. Yeah. All right, so, all right, yeah. I obviously joke too much. All right, so... Um, okay, so here's this. For although they knew God, verse 21, they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him. Their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they, be, they became what? Fools, uh, morons in the Greek. Yeah. And, here's, and he says, and here's an example. So he's gonna, like, he says, let me show you how this, ex- how this principle worked out in human history. As he looks back, he's talking about the Gentile world, not Jewish world because they've got their own issues he'll talk about in chapter 2. But he says, let's talk about the Gentile world, the, the world, the world that doesn't have the word of God, where God hasn't revealed himself through Moses. Let's talk about the world at large. And he says, this is how it's worked out. He says, uh, they exchanged, in verse 20, 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. So think Genesis. Think this God we've been learning, right? This created this amazing God who, as I've said many times, is brilliant, and he's powerful, and he's creative, and he's personal, and he's generous, and he's beautiful, and he's good. Instead of worshiping that God for creating all that there is, we turn away from that God, and what do we do? We create our own gods. And he goes on and he says, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, what's he talking about? 
idolatry, right? And as you look at the history of the human race, it's a history of idolatry still to this day. Right? You go around the world today and it's still there. And so, so we say we reject the truth about the real God. We turn away, become fools, and we, we start making images that look like big lizards or, or like uh, human beings with an eagle head that are real ugly. Or what, you know, what the thing is, you go, yeah, that's it. That, that, that's, the, that's what we need to worship. We need to like, and Paul said, this is crazy. You turn away from the real creator God, and now you start worshiping something in creation that you were created to rule over. And now you are being ruled by what you're created to be ruled over. These images that represent these different gods, right? They're not gods at all. So you turn from the light, the light goes out, and you create religious systems False religious systems that don't lead you to the true God at all. They actually lead you further away from the true. And by the way, just a quick sidebar in here. This is really the essence of idolatry even in our lives today. The essence of idolatry is where you worship something in creation over the creator. And so it can be money. It can be power. It can be sex. It can be a position. It can be a person. But anytime we, we worship and make us our ultimate value in life, this is what defines us, this is what our top value, this thing is part of creation over our creator. We love something more than our creator. We have, we have now, we have moved into idolatry. This is why in the New Testament, Colossians, Paul talks about greed, and he says, well, it's really just idolatry. Yeah. All right, so the first form of death, you know, we're, again, what we're doing is we're unpacking Genesis 3. Death will come to the race. What's death look like? Well, first thing is a spiritual death, a separation from God, oblivious to the real God, creating false gods, losing touch with spiritual reality. Number two, the second kind of death is moral death. I'm not sure it's the best way to put it. I kind of play with different words, but here's what Paul's going to say. Remember I said that God has revealed himself in two ways, through creation and through conscience. And so what Paul's going to say, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 of Romans, is that every person, regardless of their kind of spiritual, religious upbringing or whatever, that, that we have a sense, an internal sense of right and wrong, that God has placed it. And this is a reflection of his character, right? Because he's the creator, we are created in his image, so we have this internal, I like to think of it like a moral compass, all right? A moral north star, and what Paul's going to say, though, is because of our rebellion against God as a race, we are broken inside, and we have this magnetic pull to the dark side, towards that which is evil, towards that which is destructive, towards that which is self-centered, uh, towards that which is polluted or oppressive. This is why when you have little kids, you don't have to teach them how to do wrong. <laughs> right? Like, we just kind of take that for granted, but you don't have to teach them how to do wrong, you know, like, hey, every once in a while, you should just be, you know, not let your brother get away with that. He's really ripping you off, you know? Hey, every once in a while, uh, don't take the blame for that. It's not really your fault, you know? It's like, uh, you don't have to teach kids, you know, to do wrong. You teach them to do right. Hey, that's not, the way, that's not right. There's this natural, we've all, we've all been there. We've all experienced this in our life in a million different areas where we've known what's right and we have been drawn to what's wrong and there's this moral struggle inside of us, and we choose what's wrong. We, we've all been there, right? 
So what Paul's going to say is God has put this moral compass in our life, this north, north star, but as a race, we have rejected it because we'd want to go the other way. And he says, when that happens, it is self-destructive. Because remember what we've learned in this series, God's commands always lead to life. And so when we violate God's commands and we ignore the compass, it leads to death. And what he's going to say is this is actually one of God's forms of judgment on us. That when you ignore him, you turn away from what's right and true and good, you choose the dark side, you experience the death that comes as part of his judgment. What Paul says is he'll give us over to it. You want to reject the truth? Okay, I'll give you over to that. You'll, You'll experience it. Now, one of the areas he's going to use then to, as an illustration of this, is our sexuality. Sex is one of our, our most powerful drives as a human race. And so it becomes an area, it's really an easy illustration to show that here's how we know. Remember what we've learned about sex in Genesis 2. We learned that sex is a good thing, right? It was an incredible gift. We learned that God gave it to us for two reasons. Number one is to reproduce the race and to create families where we can love our kids and have safe homes and teach them how, how life works. And so it's designed to create families, uh, but it's also designed to bond one woman to one man for a lifetime of love and commitment to rule over their kingdom as king and queen, friends and lovers. Remember that? We've come back in Genesis 2. And so, so, and what the, and so what we learn there is that any kind of sex outside of that is destructive. It's like a, like a fire. You know, like fire in the right place is a great gift, right? Fire in the fireplace in your living room on a cold winter night, fantastic. Let that fire leap out into your rug, and you got a problem. I mean, burn your house down. So, so sex, same way, very powerful, right? And so what we learned back then is any sex outside of that, sex, premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, incest, bestiality, any kind of sex outside of that definition is destructive. And we, we learned that. So here's what Paul is going to say. He's going to say what happens as a culture rejects their moral north star that God's put in them, they're going to get increasingly lost. And they're going to pay the price in their own bodies. And he said, as their culture comes apart, he says, ultimately, they will begin to experience the ultimate confusion, which is the sexual confusion of homosexuality, where the way your body is designed and what your desires are, are at odds with one another. You've lost touch with your design, right? And so we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but I just want to jump in now. Let's just see what he says. So here we go. So he says uh, in verse 24, therefore, uh, in other words, since they rejected the truth, God gave them over, he let them go uh, in the sinful desires of their hearts. So we, have, we have these fallen desires and they pull us, magnetic pull. And, and so we reject the truth. So God lets us go and follow him to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now catch that. What, what Paul's saying is that sex outside of God's design is always degrading. It's dehumanizing. This is why, like, sexual immorality is dehumanizing. It's taking something's value, and and now we're treating the person as an object rather than as a person. Um, It's interesting. Obviously, as a culture, we are far down this path, haven't we? Like, some of you are old enough to remember, or you've read in your history books, but 
you know, the sexual revolution that happened in the 60s, how far we've come, right? I mean, you know, picture back when the 50s, Ozzie and Harriet, like I never saw this show, but I've told about it, uh, <laughs> that, you know, we, separate beds, right? Separate beds for, for the couple and, and to where we've come today. And we have come to a place of such a mass sexual confusion in our culture, it is spinning out of control. Uh, this summer, I read an article I, I couldn't even believe. And it was, um, it was about a new bill that's currently in our California legislature. And it's already been passed, from my understanding, by the Senate. It's kind of going to the Assembly. And it's, uh, it's called the Sexual Consensus Bill. And what it is, it's a bill to define consensual sex. Now, I'm thinking, like, how hard is this? Do you want to? Yeah, I want to. Do I want to? Yeah, I want to. Okay, cool, good to go. Like, we don't need a bill. Well, this is how you figure this out, right? But here's what I want you to catch. As a culture, we have become so confused, and we have lost our moral our moral boundaries, to the place we are degrading our bodies, to the point that we need a legal document so we know when we can have sex. Right? And so I want, to, I want to catch this. Like, to me, this is crazy, but I understand the reasoning. The reason for this bill is on our college campuses, young women are getting raped at an unprecedented rate. If you have a daughter and she's going away to college right now, I mean, you better have a conversation with her. And that conversation goes like this. Anytime you go to a party where there's alcohol or whatever, you know, anytime you go to a party, you never take a drink from someone else. And if you get up to go somewhere, you take your drink with you. And you only drink what you have opened. What has happened to us as a culture that you cannot go to a party without guarding your drink. This happens all the time. It's often in the news, often in our, our sports programs across the nation. Lawsuit after lawsuit of young men who will take advantage of a young woman when she's asleep, maybe several of them, put it on a video phone, share it with their friends. Like what has happened to us as a culture in 40 or 50 years? that we have, will degrade our bodies and degrade our daughters and our sisters in this way. What, what's happened is we have lost all sense of our North Star sexually. And so this law is designed to help stop this problem, to say this is what you need to do to make sure the sex is consensual. Like crazy. I want to read you part of the language of that bill. This is a quote from the bill that's in our legislature, from my understanding, right now, approved by the Senate. For all, so all colleges who receive public funding would have to be implementing this. Here, here's the, if there is confusion, this is a quote, if there is confusion as to whether a person has consented or continues to consent to sexual activity, it is essential that the participants stop the activity until the confusion can be clearly resolved. <laughs> Are you serious? 
This would make us the first state in the union that has a bill like this, by the way. Probably no surprise. Then it goes on. The consent has to be ongoing, and it can be revoked at any time. That's the law. Like, since when do we need a law saying, if I'm going to have sex with you, we have to both be in on this? You have a law when a culture has lost its moorings and is so confused and sexuality has been so degraded that young men can think it's fine to take advantage of women while they're asleep or to drug them and have sex and it's no big deal. You see what's happened? It's the degrading of our bodies. And Paul says this is what happens. When you let go of who God is and you let go of who you are, you get lost as a culture. And he says the ultimate confusion of this sexually then shows up in homosexuality. And we're going to talk about homosexuality in just a second, causes and so on. I don't want this to be misunderstood. But what Paul is going to say is the ultimate confusion as a culture is when you have sexual desires that are at odds with your sexual design. And so he goes on and he says um, in verse uh, 25, he says they exchanged... The, the truth of God for a lie. So this is the second time he said this. This is the core sin. We've rejected the truth. In exchange for a lie, we worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. Amen. And because of this, because we've rejected the truth, God gave them over, let them go to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And he's talking about lesbianism or bisexuality. Um, remember when Paul's writing this? Uh, homosexuality is very common in the ancient world. Um, and uh, in, in fact, you think of like 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says, hey, think of you before you came to Christ. He gives this long list of things that you're involved with, sexual morality. One of them is homosexuality. He says, but that's who you were. You've come to Christ. You've been washed. <coughs> you've been cleansed. <coughs> but that's where you've come from. It's very common. And so he says uh, that uh, he talks about lesbianism. And that phrase he uses... Um, they exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. In the Greek, what it actually says is for um, actions that are against nature. That's what the, the phrase is, against nature. In other words, this is a God, against God's design, that, that we're created one man, one woman. Even our bodies are designed to come together. It's part of nature. You can see that. You don't have to be a rocket science. Okay, this fits there. You know, this works, right? Uh, this is how it works. This is part of our design. So this is any sex outside is against nature. And then he goes on and talks about male homosexuality. He says in verse 27, in the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women, were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So, so this sort of sex against God's design, uh, it's destructive and, and you experience that. Now, I don't want you to lose sight of the main big picture, what we're talking about here. What we're talking about, Genesis 3, you rebel, you will die. What does that death look like? It's more than physical death. And so Paul's commenting on this rebellion of the race and the death, what it looks like. It looks like spiritual death with God. It looks like moral death. Okay, so that, that's big picture. But I want to stop here for just a couple minutes. I want to spend a lot of time on this. And I want to talk about this issue of homosexuality because it's such a big issue in our culture today. Right? And so when we're faced with it all the time, and so I want to spend maybe five minutes on it, uh, maybe longer, we'll see. 
But just, I, so in five minutes, not really what today's about, but this text touches on it, I want to talk about it. So three things I want to say about it. Uh, one, one of the things I think clearly that we see in this passage, you see it all through the Bible, is that homosexuality is not part of God's design for our lives. Okay? That we are not designed to participate in homosexual, same-sex relationships. It's not part of God's design. It's against his will. Paul says here it's destructive, it's wrong, and therefore as followers of Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to leave that behind. Okay? We're not to participate in that. The Bible's really clear and very consistent. Now it's interesting because you will even hear today certain churches, you'll see a lot of this, you'll see churches ordaining uh, a homosexual priests. you'll see all these kind of things, you'll see some churches, oh, we were wrong with this point and stuff. Some Christians, will, people who claim to be Christians will say, hey, Jesus didn't talk about this, and I just want to be really clear, the Bible's really clear. Jesus didn't talk about lots of things. He didn't talk about incest. He didn't talk about bestiality. He didn't talk about uh, not stealing your neighbor's Wi-Fi signal. There's a lot of things. And the reason, because Jesus is a good communicator. And as a good communicator, you communicate to the needs of the population you're teaching. In Israel, homosexuality was not an issue. Right? It was completely taboo. There's no one practicing homosexuality. He's not going to address that issue. But here's what I want you to catch. The moment the movement of Jesus moved out into the Gentile world, it becomes addressed all the time. Right? So, so Jesus held to a traditional Jewish sexual uh, standard, conduct, as did the, all the early church. And so I think that's where we need to start. That, that homosexuality is not God's will for your life, my life, anyone's life. This is kind of contrary to nature. All right? It's not, not part of the design. Number two. The second thing I think it's important for us to say um, is that, uh, that Paul is not trying to identify all causes of homosexuality. In this passage, what he's standing back from the huge scope of human history, and he says, as a, as a culture rejects the truth about who God is, rejects the moral star of who they, the, the, kind of the, the, the moral north star of who they are, there is an increasing confusion that's worked out in their life. One of the areas is sexuality. Here's one of the ways you see it in the rise of homosexuality. But he's not, I don't think, he's not trying to say this is the cause of all homosexuality. And this is really important because if you struggle with homosexuality or someone you know struggles with homosexuality, uh, the, one of our first thoughts is like, what did I do, do wrong? Or you can look at it and say, is there something about that person that's rebelled against God that's caused this to happen? And that's not what Paul's saying. You know, the best state of research today is that we don't really know all the causes of homosexuality. And this is important to say even on the secular side or the Christian side. In the secular community, the message that we're constantly fed is that homosexuality is genetic. And therefore, if you, if you have homosexual desires, it's, it's how you were created to be. And to fight this is just, uh, uh, just a huge mistake. It's going to lead to Tremendous dysfunction in your life because this is genetic. You were born that way. It's who you are. And so that's the message. But I can tell you that there is no definitive research that shows that. That the research is very mixed and there's been no gay gene that's discovered yet. Now, that may happen at some point. I'll talk about it in a minute. And it may happen at some point. But at this point, it's not true. On the flip side, when you're in Christian circles, Christians often act as if the causes of homosexuality are all environmental. And so they'll often act as if, uh, hey, if you have homosexual desire, it's because uh, maybe it's a relationship with your mother or your relationship with your father, or it's a relation, or you are sexually abused, and that's why. 
But the, re- the reality is the best research shows that we don't really understand. All these things are somehow involved. There may be a genetic component of some. At some it's not primary, but there may be some. There's environmental things and so on. So the best of research shows that we don't really know exactly why. But here's what I want you to catch. A couple of things. Number one, even if it is genetic, that doesn't mean it's right. You know, often as Christians, we kind of fight over this, was genetic or not. I won't be surprised if it turns out that it is genetic. But, what's imp- but, but there's a lot of things that are genetically wrong with us. We have all kinds of, ge- in every system of our body, there are genetic things wrong with us. It would be shocking to me if sexual identity wasn't affected by the fall in the area of genetic, you know, in, in genetics at some point for some people. And so just because something is doesn't mean it's right. It still would be destructive to us to pursue that. But what, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm kind of focusing on this cause thing is it's so important for us as Christ followers when someone uh, has a draw towards same-sex attraction that we don't see that. And the reason they're like that is because of a personal rebellion against God. It doesn't necessarily mean that. And it may be for them, you may be able to trace a long line of sexual immorality that has gone from one thing to another that's gotten more and more off base until it's like, you may be able to, but it may have nothing to do with that, right? The third thing I want to say about this, about uh, homosexuality, is it's so important how we respond as Christ's followers. You know, as followers of Jesus, we are called to love everyone, regardless of their sin of choice, right? As followers of Jesus, like we, when Jesus came, he hung out with sinners, I didn't really care what sin their sin was. He just came. He said, I didn't come to condemn. I came to save. And so as followers of Jesus, this is our message. And often we have really botched this. Gay slurs, uh, 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 ugly speech. Uh, You see the signs of those claiming to be Christians. God hates fags. You're going to burn in hell. what, what, What does that have to do with Jesus? Like, what in the world is that going to do? It said, I came to rescue people who are lost. I came to hang with sinners, right? So Jesus doesn't really care what your sin is. He came to rescue you from it. And as followers of Jesus, that's our message. We don't care where you're coming from. We don't, you, you struggle with homosexual issues. I struggle with heterosexual issues. We're all in this thing together. Jesus came to rescue all of us. So that we could live pure lives and become the people we're created to be. Right? And so, so God loves you and he loves me and we're both screwed up and welcome to the party. So that's our message. And men and women, this is so important. Not only that we take this message outside the body of Christ. This is so important that we take it inside the body of Christ. Because there are many of you here that struggle with this. There, there, there are people in your life group that may struggle with this. I've known many people at Rocky Peak who have come and shared their story with me. We've gone out to dinner. We've talked about their journey. Right? And this can be so hard because as a follower of Jesus, this is a hard calling. If you struggle with homosexual desire and you know that it's not okay for me to engage in that. And so I'm going to follow Jesus. This is a hard calling. And you need the body of Christ around you, loving you, encouraging you, building you up to help you pursue the life of purity that we're all called to. 
And so we should be able to have in our life group someone confide in us. Hey, I've never shared this with anyone else, but I struggle with same-sex attraction. And our instinct should be to love them, put our arms around them, say, share your story. Come out of the light. Come into the light. Let us come around you. Let us love you well. Let us encourage you to pursue Jesus well. Amen? And that's the church we want to be. And we need more churches like that that are saying, yeah, not holding the line. No, this is wrong. This is not, this is not right. It's not okay. This is not okay to pursue sexual sin. This is destructive. But we all have issues. We want to love you well and help you grow. Now, if you're saying, hey, I would love to learn more, maybe you're struggling with that. Maybe you're struggling with that. Maybe there's someone in your life, a son, a daughter, uh, a brother, a sister, a friend, struggling. A couple resources that can be really helpful. I put them there on your note sheet. They're two books. The first, uh, first book by Mark Yarhouse is a great, Mark is a great research, has done the best research on all secular and Christian studies on sexuality, uh, on homosexuality. And, you know, part of that supporting our brothers and sisters when they come and share with us is not trying to give easy answers to complex problems. Because the reality is, is that we don't really understand how homosexuality works. We don't really know all the sources and so when someone comes forward and we give them a simple answer like, hey, just surrender to Jesus and ask him to, to, uh, to take this desire away, and then you'll be like heterosexual and you can get married, that's sometimes true and it's sometimes not true. It's just like a, a, an addiction. Like someone, some people come to Jesus with a heroin addict and Jesus saves them completely right away. And other people come and they have to learn how to follow Jesus and surrender and die to themselves and be freed over time, Right? And so there's not, there's not any one solution to this. And, and there's a different path for every person. And so we don't want to have overly simplistic answers. We want to come alongside and love and support as this person pursues God, pursues his word, pursues, listens to the Holy Spirit, and to seek what is God's path for them in pursuing Jesus. So that first book by Yarhouse, great book in terms of if you're struggling with it, someone else you're struggling, how we respond to that, kind of the, the, the most recent research on source, uh, sources and so on. The second book is a really fascinating book by a young man, this Wesley man, who uh, is, is a passionate Christ follower. He went to my alma mater, to Wheaton College, uh, he uh, loves Jesus, but he uh, has struggled with homosexual desire for a long time, and he's gone through therapy and different things, but he's just come to a place where at this point in his life, God has not freed him, so he's choosing to follow Jesus and to be sexually pure and to surrender his life, and it's his story. It's, it's his story of, hey, I've been washed by God, and I've been forgiven, but I, I have a fallen body until I get to heaven. I won't be free from this, perhaps, but I want to follow Jesus well. And so it's a great insider's look of, of what his experience has been that will really uh, probably move you. If you're at all touched by this issue, I'll tell you, the night I, I, I read it, uh, just very extremely moved by his journey. And so this is a couple of resources, all right? So that's my little sidebar that turned into a bigger sidebar. But um, this message is really about death, right? And so there's spiritual death. There's moral death. We, we ignore the, the, the moral story. Now, the last one, the last kind of death that Paul wants to identify here, I'm calling it relational death. And what he says is that when we rebelled against God, we broke that vertical relationship with God. Something broke inside of us in terms of our character, and that leads to relational death, to broken relationships. We became self-absorbed. We became bent. We became narcissistic. We saw this in Genesis 3. 
The moment the first man and woman rebelled, what happened? They began fighting with one another, blaming, projecting. Their relationship breaks apart. You see that in Genesis. Their kids end up killing one another, literally. Uh, There's violence released in the culture, polygamy. All relationships become dysfunctional as a result of this rebellion. And so Paul wants to talk about that, relational death. And so in verse um, verse, uh, 28, he says, furthermore... Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, the third time he said that, this rejection of truth, God gives him over to a depraved mind, a fallen mind, a broken mind, to do things that ought not to be done. And so they become um, filled with all kinds of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And so now he's going to go through this long laundry list of the human race. This is what the human race is like. When the human race rejects God, rejects the northern star, it goes down, down, down. It affects not just their sexuality, it affects all the relationships. This is what it looks like. And as we go through this laundry list of, of evil, I don't want you to think in terms of yourself. Hey, is this true about me? You know, do I have envy? I don't want you to, what I want you to do is I want you to ask the question, what are relationships like that are characterized by these qualities? Right? So what's a marriage like? That's filled with this. What's a, a family like? What's a, a team at work like? What's a sports team like that are filled with these characteristics? And you see how this rejection of truth leads to a character change in our lives that leads to destruction of all relationships. And so he says um, in verse 29, they've been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy. They're full of murder. They're full of strife. They're full of deceit. And they're full of malice. What's it like to be part of a work team? on the job that's full of envy and deceit. Have you ever been there? You can't trust. People are backstabbing one another. They're not looking out for the good of the company or the good of the project. They're just trying to position themselves so they come off good and get the next promotion. It just brings dysfunction into everything. Um, they're, um, they're gossips. They're slanderers. They're God-haters. They're insolent. They're arrogant. They're boastful. Ever been around someone? It's all about me. You know, it's like every time they're always taking the credit, always trying to turn it to them. What does that do to relationships? They invent ways of doing evil. I love this one. They disobey their parents. <laughs> they kill people. They lie. They steal. They disobey their parents. Um, <laughs> but really, you know, what's it like to be in a, in a family where the kids are rebellious, entitled, ungrateful, disobedient? Man, painful to be in a family like that. Uh, he says, they're, they're, verse 11, they're senseless. In other words, they're insensitive. They're faithless. They break their, their commitments. They betray you. They're heartless. They don't care. They're ruthless. They look out for number one. And catch this, although they know God's righteous decree. He's written this on their heart. They have this moral conscience. Uh, chapter 2 talks more about that. Although they have no God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they know it. They not only continue to do the, the very things, but they also approve those, they applaud those who practice them. And so what he does, he stand back from the human race. Remember the Roman Empire when he's writing, he says, this is a story of our race. We reject the truth about who God is and we, we die spiritually. We reject the truth about who we are. We lose our way morally. That works out in our relationships. Our relationships become dysfunctional. We, we live in culture that's full of backbiting and envy and seeking number one. The whole thing comes apart. And here's what I want you to catch. This is what Genesis 3 is talking about when it talks about death. 
This is death. This is a picture. It's a New Testament commentary on Genesis 3. This is the story of our race. And of course, the good news is that in Genesis 3, right in the midst of the sentence, God promised that one day someone would come from the line of Eve who would rescue us, turn back the hands of time, and crush the serpent's head. And that's, of course, the story of Christmas. And we'll get there to that good news next week. But today, what I want to do is hone in on this core lesson that we learn in this passage about how we respond to truth. Because did you notice that? That three times Paul says, this is the core issue. God has revealed himself. He's revealed the North Star, the path to life. And three times says, we've rejected it, chosen our own way. We've gone into darkness, confusion, destruction. And so there in your note sheet, in the time we have left, which isn't very much, but I'll make it longer, uh, <laughs> the final section is the restoration, the core question. And so I've got a core question for you. Uh, this is an epic question. As we've gone through Genesis 1 to 3, it's all epic. This is the start of our story. Every week, it's big picture reality. And so the question this week for our lives, your life, my life, goes like this, that how do you respond to the truth? How do you in your life respond to the truth? Now, we've seen today that the core sin, the core mistake, the core rebellion was to reject truth. It leads to darkness, which leads to death and destruction. So the question is, how do you respond to the truth? If that's the path of death, then responding to truth, how we respond to truth is the way to life. In other words, the dimmer switch principle still works today. It still works in our life. So Jesus talks about this, right? In uh, John chapter 8, He's talking to a group of followers who have recently started to believe in him. And he says, if you listen to my word and you follow it, he says, here's what's happened. Here's the verse, John 8, note sheet. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Okay, so catch this. Paul says, Romans 1, the core sin of our race was a refusal to embrace the truth. Turn away from the light. Our lives become dark, leads to confusion and death. That's the core sin. Jesus comes along and says, so here's the way out. If the way into death was refusal to embrace the truth, what's the way out of death? We have to embrace the truth, right? Even if it's hard. Now, I want you to think about this. For those of you who are are followers of Jesus here, right? Some of you are just checking this out. You're on your way in. But for those of you who are followers of Jesus here, I want you to think back to how you came to Christ. Because this is how it always happens, I mean, aware of it or not, whether it's over a short time or a long time, but there is a gradual dawning of truth in your life. It's the way it happens. The Holy Spirit begins turning up the light in your life. And you begin realizing that you're part of this rebel race. You begin to realize there is a God, and you begin to realize that you have known what's right, and you have rejected it. And that therefore, you're under a sentence of death. You're part of the rebel race. And that there's no way out. And then someone shares with you that there is a way out, that God has come through Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection to die in your place so you can be forgiven and be made right with God. But in order to receive this gift, you have to come under his leadership. You can't continue to rebel against the creator. You have to repent, turn back, trust in Christ alone, turn from your evil ways, and pursue the truth, right? So that's how we start our journey. Some people 
when that light comes, turns away from the light. I don't want to see that light. My deeds are evil. You know, I don't, I, that's making me uncomfortable. I don't want to turn from the light. I don't want to embrace the light because my deeds are evil. I'm going to turn away. I'd rather live in the darkness. Some people say, all right, it's hard. I've got to submit. It's going to be difficult. Uh, I've got to admit that I'm wrong. I've got to admit that I'm guilty, but I'm coming into the light and we're saved. We're rescued. I had a whole new life. So here's why I want you to catch. This is how we start our journey with Jesus, by embracing the light. Here's what I want you to catch. This is exactly how we continue our journey with Jesus. This turning to light is not a one-time thing. It is a way of life for the Christ follower. Because the Holy Spirit is always going to be coming in our life every day, every week, every month, every year. And the Holy Spirit's always going to be coming in and turning up that light switch a little bit. And as he does, we're going to see things in our life that, oh, I didn't know that before. Like, you know, if you keep the lights down low enough, your house always looks clean. Right? It's like, hey, don't turn the light. It looks dirty in here. No, it is dirty in here. Right, you do this in the dark, right? And so as the Holy Spirit turns up the light, we begin to, oh, that attitude, that priority, that action. That what, they, oh, I didn't see that before. And so now we have a choice. And when he turns up the light, we can then move towards that light and say, okay, let me understand that more, Lord, and kind of move, or we can, or we can say, oh, uh, that's uncomfortable. Let's turn it down. Let's turn my back, move away. You see, the dimmer switch principle still works today. And so let's get real practical here. Think of your life. Every week, you come to church here, or however often you come, once a year, whatever. Uh, you, you come to church, right? And, and the word of God is taught, and it doesn't matter whether it's me or Dave or Dre, you know that sense when God is speaking to you. Like you talk to me about it all the time. I felt like it was just for me. Yeah, well, that's just the Holy Spirit. He's just illumin- What he's doing is he's turning up the light. And when that happens, you have a choice to make. Now, it could be a million things. It could be the Holy Spirit starts to show you you're harsh with your wife. It could be that you have an anger problem. It could be a sexual purity issue. It could be a money issue, a giving issue, a generosity issue. It could be a forgiveness issue. It could be a million things. But he begins to turn up the light. Why? Because he wants to lead you to life. He wants to free you up. You know, you can't clean the house if you don't know it's dirty. So he turns it up. But when he turns it up, you have a choice. You know, when your son or your daughter, your husband or wife comes and says, I think you have a problem here. You're this way. You're that way. Do we move towards that light and say, God, do I have a problem? My wife thinks I have a problem. Do you think I have a problem? Or is my wife my problem? Like, which is it? <laughs> or do we say, I don't have a problem, and we never even ask God if she's right? Do we move towards it or away from it? You're reading the word on your own, and you're a passage of scripture speaking to you. Move towards it or away from it? You see, many times what happens is what sometimes when God turns up the light, it's a good thing. It feels good right away. Like some of you right now, you're worried about how you're going to pay for Christmas or how you're going to pay your bills. And the Holy Spirit comes, you're reading the word or you're in worship or you're, and the Holy Spirit comes and says, I've got this. I love you. I know where you, I will provide. And he turns up the light. And it's like, ah, oh, 
and feel so good, right? To walk in the light. God's with me, right? So sometimes when God turns, it says like, yes. But other times it's like, oh no. <laughs> like I think God's trying to tell me something. I hope it's, he's not. <laughs> right? Can I tell you something? In my life, this has become a habit and I'd recommend it to you. And then when there's something that comes in my, up in my life that I think God may be speaking to me, and it scares me, what I've learned to do is to immediately run not away from him, but to run to him and to name that fear. Maybe it's a conversation, a tough conversation I don't want to have with someone. And I don't think I need to have. And then all of a sudden, you feel like maybe, maybe God's trying to show me I need to have that. And I don't want to have that conversation. And I'm afraid. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of courage. And I don't want to have that conversation. I remember once not that long ago, I was driving down Tapo Canyon in Simi Valley. It was one of these issues. And it's just become a habit. The moment there's a fear that God may be telling me something I don't want to hear, I run to him. And I name it. And I say, God, I just need to talk about this. You know, I don't know if this is from you or not. It may be, may not be. This might be the enemy for all I know. But there's this thought, and I'm wondering if you're trying to tell me something. And I'm scared to death you might be trying to tell me something. Because I want to do that thing. But I'm more afraid of turning away from the light. And missing the freedom. And so I'm going to come to you full with my fear in my hands. And so I don't know if it's from you or not, but I don't want to run and I don't want to hide and I want to pretend. I want to run towards you with my fear and name it. And it's a powerful thing to do. It's a powerful thing to do. And the reason I do that is I've learned over the years that his commands lead to life. They lead to, and no matter how hard they are, how painful that I'll trust him, it's going to be worth it. And so my question for you as we wrap this up, is there any area of your life <clears throat> where you think God may have been speaking, maybe for years, and you have run the opposite way in hopes he isn't? Not realizing that as you've turned and run, you're running away from the light. And you're going to pay a price for that. And the price is God's going to say, okay, you want to run? You can run. But... When you ignore the compass I've given you, you end up in the wilderness. That's what happens. Until we come to that place where I am so lost and I'm so confused and my marriage is so messed up or my finances are so messed up or my purpose in life, I'm so messed up, God, I'm lost. He's like, okay, here's the light. Remember, way back here, start moving towards the light. And so Sarah's going to come out right now and she's going to be singing over us a song about coming out of hiding. I love this song because... When I think of our first parents, what they did when God came, what they do? They ran and hid. And it's what our natural tendency is. But what we need to do is learn, hey, when God may be speaking, and you're not even sure, but you're afraid he is, come out of hiding. Run to your father. And let him heal you. So let's pray together. Then I want to give you time just to reflect on this, see if God wants to speak to you during this time of serious things. Father, we pray that we would, we would learn not to run from you, but to run towards you with those fears, those areas that are scary for us, things that are threatening, things that we don't want to do. We pray that you would come and that you would give us courage to run towards you 
And that in that, we would find the truth and the truth would set us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God, with everything, everything we have, we want to shout forth your praise. And we thank you for the great redemption that's come, that we are no longer subject to the same death, that through the ministry of Jesus Christ, who's come and lived and died and risen for us, that we are partakers of the powers of the age to come that we have already been made alive in Christ, raised with him in the heavenly places, reigning with him now, that the life of the coming age has invaded our lives and it caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And God, we want to live for that glory. We want to live for that fame. And we know that that can never happen until we surrender our lives and we move towards the light and we embrace the truth and we are transformed and so we become embodiments of what Jesus does when we give him access. And so we pray, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit in fresh ways upon our church and that we would lose our fears and take our fears to you and we'd walk into the light that we might be transformed. We might become a walking advertisement for the glory of God, for what you do in a life that comes into the light. And so we pray for that in this Christmas season as we seek the one, that we pray that we would be like those wise men who went over a thousand miles in search of the star, following the light, knowing that it would lead them to their answer. And God, may we be that. We follow that light you give us to yourself till it leads us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name for your sake, for your glory. We pray it together in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 Well, Merry Christmas. Hey, I hope you can be with us next week as we get to the good news side of this ledger. And we, we, uh, we celebrate the coming of the great Redeemer from the line of Eve that would crush the, the serpent's head. Uh, until then, may the Lord be with you. Don't forget, we have prayer every week over here to my right, prayer TV prayer. Until then, God bless you. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you next weekend for Christmas.